Hello, this is Jennifer Lescalette from MDisrupt. MDisrupt is a platform that connects digital health innovators with the scientists and the health industry experts that want to bring their products to market quickly and responsibly. Our podcast today will explore a global perspective of precision medicine and specifically how precision medicine can become ubiquitous across health services, geographies, and socioeconomic settings. I'm super excited today to speak with Dr. Bernard Esquivel. Bernard is a practicing physician scientist and international business leader with expertise in developing new markets in genomics and precision medicine. He's been pretty busy over the past 10 years. He's worked to bring advances in genomics and precision medicine in Latin America and beyond. And he's the founder and president of the Latin American Association of Personalized Medicine, ALAMP. Bernard, it's a great pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Great. I would love to start um, and to begin hearing about your background, your career journey, and how you turned your passion for precision medicine into a career. Sure. So um, as you uh, mentioned before, my background, I'm a clinical, uh, I'm a physician by training to be more specific, clinical immunologist, allergist. So during my training, I learned about the clinical implications and the role that our genes, our genetic information actually play on our on how we can, we can develop certain types of diseases and so on. So once I started formally practicing medicine, I tried to find how I was actually, you know, I was able to implement those tools and start testing my patients and understanding their genes and ideally find a way to implement that into my work flow so I can provide a precision medicine-based approach with that. Um, that's, what I, that's what I noticed that, uh, number one, it was very hard to find those tools, find those uh, tests. Number two, it was very hard to actually get access into the information and training in order to understand and clinically implement and take decisions based, based on that information. And number three, all of my pearls and colleagues thought that I was talking about Star Wars or some dark sciences. So facing those interesting uh, barriers, implementation barriers, that's that, that's when uh, back in 2014, a colleague of mine and myself, we decided to uh, found the Latin American Association of Personalized Medicine. Basically, the aim here was actually uh, finding ways to um, share knowledge, share information with our with our colleagues in order to keep fostering the right implementation of Christian medicine. During our journeys, I had the chance of interacting with a lot of KOLs globally um, from different fields of Christian medicine. And uh, I learned from them on how they were implementing Christian medicine, pharmacogenomics, cancer testing, uh, lifestyle, um, digital health wearables, and so on. And um, that's been, long story short, that's been the last 12 years. And, and I've been 100% into Christian medicine, passionate about it, and, and uh, fostering, as I, as I said before, globally, in order to find a way to make this fantastic new tools, take them closer to the patients. Great. I, I'd really like to hear your definition of precision medicine. Is that precision medicine has been has been and is poised to make a great impact on healthcare for clinicians, patients, and research participants and beyond. But it would be really great to hear your definition of it and then compare it compare the definition of precision medicine and personalized medicine so the audience can understand um, the nuances. Sure, and I think that's a fantastic way of that's a fantastic starting point. And nowadays we use, you know, different, in similar ways, we, we use precision medicine, personalized medicine, and even individualized medicine. Uh, and to be honest, we can use it in, a, in the same way, even though they have some sort of differences. Uh, precision medicine, um, it's, uh, focus, it's more focused on, the, on a, how to implement this on a, on a more comprehensive approach. 
personalized medicine is specific to the patient. Individualized medicine was initially um, implemented and, and hence shared as from uh, as, uh, from one of the m- most relevant organizations, health organizations in, U- in the U.S., they're one of the early adapters about this this field. But let me go one step back, for example, and uh, and discuss what I believe you know needs to needs needs to change or needs to be to evolve. For example, uh, if we use a definition that cancer.gov in the U.S. has about uh, Christian medicine, their, their, their the definition they they share is a form of medicine that uh, uses information about a person's own genes or proteins to prevent, diagnose, or treat diseases. Even though it's an interesting definition, to be honest, I think there are missing missing parts here. One of them is actually pretty predict. They're talking about prevent, which is fantastic. But actually, the, the, the new trend and when, where I believe Christian medicine is, is, is leaning nowadays is to predict, meaning using data from patients, subpopulations, larger groups, and of ones, different, different data sets of a single patient, and using the new technology that we have, such as machine learning and so on, in order to predict how the patient will respond, for example. Another thing here is that a uh, uh, and that's that was that was that was the, um, the previous trend that our precision medicine or personalized medicine was mostly focused on the genetic information or genetic related information of the patient, which again it's correct, but I believe it's it's not enough nowadays because there are other factors that now are playing a crucial role on how precision medicine is evolving, such as for example lifestyle, such as for example the different omics, metabolomics, epigenomics, nutrigenomics, genomics, obviously proteomics. And also the social factors, social determinants of health that we know of health that we know are crucial as well. The um, ethical factors, the communicative fact, the, the, the communicational factors. The, the, even the there's there's even new trends about your social uh, applications that, that that you're going to use and how they may impact your health, for example. So, in short, that's the definition that we're having nowadays. But we need to actually revisit that definition and make it more comprehensive because precision medicine is not only about genetic information anymore. Great. I love it. I think that's, um, I love the, the comprehensive, comprehensive part where you bring in lifestyle, you bring in all the omics, social determinants of health, the, the data, the genetics, all of those play a part. And then given that, how do you envision the healthcare delivery paradigm in the U.S. changing in the future? And what role is all of that going to play for clinicians and the patient? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question. I think number one, um, we need to understand that um, it's just another piece of the puzzle. We need to understand that the precision medicine, indeed, it's something fascinating. It's something that will help us to um, uh, start proposing custom-made uh, treatments or prevent uh, preventive protocols per patient. But at the end of the day, it's just another piece of the puzzle. What I'm trying to say with this is that we will and we should continue practicing medicine the way we have been trained. Nevertheless. We need to understand that these tools will, will make our practice more accurate and probably safer for our patients. And ideally, folk, um, there will be a leaning into cost effectiveness, which is a new trend. It's basically a new trend in the US and globally should be um, value-based care. So, and this is something that somehow it's, it also uh, became a barrier in terms of implementing Christian medicine. Back in the 90s, uh, when, uh, when Christian medicine was, you know, a big boom globally, everyone thought that it was, you know, this groundbreaker, groundbreaking, disruptive, uh, game changer uh, initiative, which somehow it is. 
but you know the the expectations were probably higher and everyone thought oh yeah for example pharmacogenomics oh yeah now we're going to be you know we're going to be 100% accurate in how we'll be prescribing and everything's going to be about the genetic makeup of the uh, makeup of the patient the reality as i said it's very useful to know how the patient will metabolize or respond to a treatment but there are also other factors that you know, we need to take into account and we have been trained for that such so as for example the normal ones kidney function liver function weight size, comorbidities, drug-drug interactions, and so on. So one of the key factors here, as I said, uh, and go going back to your question, is understanding that this is a fascinating new tool, but it's just another tool. It's just another tool that requires training, understanding, understanding you know, the right level of expectations and limitations, and use it in a, on, a, on a single basis fashion. One patient, one, time, one, uh, one plan. Great. I, I feel like, you know, we're, we're two decades in now since the human genome was published. And, and I, given, you know, what you said, I've already made some examples of this, but what, what are some of the, the obstacles to widespread adoption of precision medicine? I think you're right where it's, it was this amazing ground breaking, innovative tools, but maybe, like you said, the expectations were so high, but we haven't, we haven't quite seen, <laughs> it hasn't quite got, gotten there yet, I don't think. You know, in, in some respect it has, but, but in others it hasn't. And I'm just wondering what are some of those obstacles to widespread adoption? Yes, so I, um, there are several uh, obstacles here. Number one is, um, well, we need, to, we need to continue following evidence, an evidence-based approach meaning we need to find, we need to show clinical validity, clinical utility, clinical actionability, and so on. And somehow, and in some, um, into, into some extension, I believe that has been done. Nevertheless, current clinical trials that we have in medicine sometimes are not the best option when you are trying to show the, ev the clinical evidence or the scientific evidence of an end of one, end of one approach meaning we all know the importance of a meta-analysis. We all know the importance of having large ends of, of, or number of subjects in a trial in order to create evidence, robust um, statistical evidence for something that you are um, researching, for example. But precision medicine is unique because you may be talking about a single individual with a lot of data points, a lot of data sets, as you can imagine, from a single person, meaning the first barrier is evolving the way we are uh, running clinical trials. The second one uh, is about implementation and clinical actionability. We need, even though, for example, and I'm going to use another, the same examples from pharmacogenomics, we all know that some variants, some genetic variants of the CYP450 enzymes may impact on how the patient will respond to certain, certain sort of medications. Nevertheless, you need to also to take that into a different, to the next level, that is, okay, what can I do next? Is there, is there any, any other medication, any, any other option for the treatment of the patient? Is there any specific, specific clinical guidelines that can help me to, for example, customize the, the, the dosing of that medication for that specific patient? That's clinical actionability. How can I actually take decisions, evidence-based decisions with that information that you're providing me uh, from, the, from, from with uh, that information uh, with the precision medicine background? The third one is actually, it needs to be ready. It needs to be actionable, meaning it needs to be handy. In other words, if we don't implement the precision medicine information or data sets into the clinical workflow, it's going to be a hard stop. It needs to be integrated on, on, uh, with the uh, electronic medical record, with EHR. 
in order to make it user-friendly for the provider as part of our day-to-day -to -day, uh, tools to make it easier to accept, hence implement. Another one, and one of the most important ones here is actually training and education. For instance, I didn't know a thing about Christian medicine until I basically, I, I finished my uh, residency and, and PhD. That's when I started, you know, kind of learning that that was some, something actually feasible, ready, and even with clinical utility. So a big um, milestone here is we, we need to continue providing the right resources for the providers, not only the physicians, the providers, in order to help them feel comfortable enough to start using this kind of tools. And last but not least is actually cost effectiveness. And we need to show from the cost effectiveness standpoint that it makes sense, that, is, that, is, that it makes sense to invest in molecular testing, that it makes sense to invest in this kind of you know, large technical or technological, sorry, technological um, platforms that we need, that it makes sense, that is, that is an value-based approach and that we can prove total, total cost of care savings and cost effectiveness respectively. So the, the big buckets that you mentioned are around you know, evidence-based approach. So collecting the data, training of our healthcare professionals, the introduction to electronic medical records, the health economics part of it. When you think about innovation, and if you're talking to a, an audience of digital health innovators, where do you think the innovation, if you had to, if you had to rank them or what, what, where's, where's the, what's bucket is most important for innovation to occur? I would say um, integration. That's a, that's a key factor. Integration and readiness, uh, implementation. It needs to be smooth. It needs to be, and that's been one of the main problems nowadays. For example, if you are trying to use, I don't know, um, I'm gonna just just one example here. Let's say that you're trying to, you're sequencing your, your patient's tumor, the, the tumor of the patient, and um, then you want to use that information into your clinical normal workflow in order to take some decisions factories how how can actually that connectivity that connect, connectivity between platforms how can i make it easier for the provider to um in other words see everything watch everything in a single platform for example and the other one is how how can i make those platforms those technological platforms to communicate to communicate between them for example if my patient is receiving some sort of treatment in one institution and then this patient goes back to their primary physician, for example, how we can have a continuity of that with that patient, for example. The other one is to keep in mind that data nowadays, it's a big trend and we have too much data. And the problem is about how can we can act, how we can actually organize that data, structure that data, digest that data, and then learn from that data in order to keep having, uh, taking decisions. And that data goes beyond the electronic medical record. That data goes beyond the provider. Actually, that data nowadays is coming from the patient, from the final user. And that's, you know, the, the, the new digital health, computational health, wearables, all these wearables that our patients are using. How can, actually we can how can we translate that data and integrate that into our current workflow in order to make, to make it actionable? Yeah, you're, you're get, I'm getting to my next question because when you, you talked about this um, relationship between the physician and the patient, where they have all of this information because the physician might order a test, but the patient might say, well, I just took this direct to consumer at home test. And so you have all this information. And so, and then there, you know, the data on the wearable. So how do you bring all of that? And, it, and I don't think we're there today, but will that be something in the future where we're bringing all of that information 
together to kind of give this individualized view of the patient. And definitely. yeah, are we there yet, I guess? Or when will we be there? Um, definitely, yeah. I think um, I can envision, I definitely envision Christian medicine implemented uh, the way you just described it within the next five years, to be honest with you. I think that we are getting there in terms of connectivity. We're getting there, there in terms of data management. I think there are, you know, another interesting uh, barriers will come that we'll need to bridge or, or we'll need to gap here. Those, those we need to uh, bridge those gaps here that would be safety, privacy. Well, I think we'll discuss, we probably will discuss that, um, that later. But one thing to keep in mind, is, as, as I said, is evidence and actionability. So uh, sometimes, you know, talking about direct-to-consumer testing can uh, make, make me a little bit anxious, as you can imagine. Not because those platforms that the patient are, you know, decide to use are or are not reliable or, or credible or real. It's, it's about how the patient will in, uh, use or how the patient will understand this information and how they may even take decisions based on this information. That's why I sometimes I, I believe that up. rather than, than direct-to-consumer, consumer-initiated consumer testing, it's some, it, it might be something more suitable. The main difference here is that you have a third party in the middle. You have someone as a genetic counselor or even a physician helping number one, uh, helping the patient to select which test or tool from the prescription medicine standpoint might be the best for, for him or her, and then help them to understand how they can actually use that information to like day to day or even with their, with, their, with their providers. I think that's one of the milestones here that we need to keep in mind. We need to continue um, always, I need to stress, you know, the importance of um, direct-to-consumer. We need to be very mindful about this. That's number one. And, um, and number two, it's, um, as I said, you know, managing this data. Because the, we all know, you know, that, the, for example, the social determinants of health play, play a crucial role in how a patient will, uh, on, the, on the patient health. We all know how many data sets, data points we can get from, from, that, from that perspective. And we, all, we already know how to use that information, digest that information, and even model that information in order to predict how the region of the patient, for example, if there's, um, let's say that we're talking about asthma. And let's say even, be, even before talking about you know, some genes that will impact how the patient will respond to the normal treatments that we use for asthma, for example, even though that we can also predict from the genetic standpoint, aspects, many aspects of, of how aggressive the disease may be for this patient. For example, the social determinants of health are huge here in this patient. And we know, for example, just if the patient lives nowadays, let's say on the West Coast, and we know all, with all these fires all around the place, we can predict how those fires will impact this patient, hence may have a acute presentation of the disease, meaning all the consequences around this problem, for example. And that's just a simple example. There are other, there are other such as, you know, even access to, uh, to main services, access to uh, or, or living in a safety environment, education, and so on. So all, those, all that information, it's, it's already there. And we are, we are already actually sharing that information on a day-to-day basis. The next milestone for the next five years is going to be about ethics how those corporations are going to be actually managing, handling, and protecting your information as a patient. And then at what point, and I think we've, you've alluded to this already, but at what point is precision medicine just, just medicine? Like it's, it's integrated and it's part, where, where, where do we have to 
what do we have to do? And I think you've mentioned a lot of this, but maybe just in summary, what do we have to do to get there? I, I think we need to understand number one that it's 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 uh, it's um, phase based approach, one step at a time. I think also it's important to keep in mind an evidence based approach, and uh, I think it's important. It's critical that I w- what's going to be actually you know implemented first in the same line is to be honest, what can actually prove cost effectiveness, which what can actually prove return of investment, which can actually prove an enhancement of a value-based care, for example. I think we're I think we're there. I think there are, there are and I've seen that there are already several organizations, globally speaking, that are currently implementing precision different precision medicine features on, into their into clinical workflows. I think it's about standardization and I think it's about as any other as any other scientific uh, field continue evolving and continue proving uh, the evidence behind it and the science. So I'd like to turn our attention to um, digital health innovation. So many of the MDisrupt audience are digital health innovators. Um, they have access to, to different types of technology and, and capital and engineers to build solutions. And when you think about precision medicine, what could those digital health innovators do more of and what are, what aren't, what are they not doing enough of? I think that's, that's a fantastic question. And I think number one will be integration. Uh, having a smooth workflow, yeah, a smooth workflow in terms of integration. We need to understand that uh, precision medicine, uh, it's way more comprehensive as, as, as the definition that you and I uh, discussed at the beginning of this conversation. So it's integration of the different pieces that nowadays we believe actually are precision medicine, such as um, omics, as we have discussed, digital health, computational health, imaging, how how they and then is you know how they can actually you know start packaging that information that's that's critical in digital health. But once you got all those all those data sets, how are you going to start you know making subgroups of that information, organizing that information in order to allow the new technology such as machine learning to start making some models with that information and start making some predictive models to be more specific. Then um, interact that information with the different or, or other aspects such, such as. For example, genomics, microbiome, exposure, behaviors, clinical tests, even patient-contributed data. Connecting this information, ideally, I'm just talking about, you know, here the ideal scenario. Finding ways once you 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 structure and and, and organ, organize all the information that I just described. Connect this information, connect all that information to the other, you know, clinical information such as the clinical discovery, the population science, the basic molecular, the basic uh, test of the patient. And then finding a way on how you can actually deliver that information to the final user. I know it's it sounds hard, but I know many people is actually working on this nowadays. When when I when I read digital health articles and trends, there's just thousands and thousands of apps that are getting created all the time for for different things. And so as a consumer, you have access to a lot of a lot of things, a lot of information, a lot of ways to track your health. But I'm I'm not sure if it's if it's great if it if if they've looked at, you know, is this the best for the patient? Does this make it easier for the physicians or you know, just overall health health professionals that are using it? And so how do we get to that? Like what do you think is how do you evaluate new health technology? What do you think is you know, the difference between being trendy and exciting to, to actually being useful 
for patient care and useful for the for for health professionals in their day to day activities and work. That's a fantastic question, and I mean, as you as, as you as you just, you just mentioned, there are a lot of things nowadays uh, out there, right, that we can actually choose not only as a provider but also as a user, as a patient, as as as, as a person, and so. I would say number one is we need to be mindful in terms of the evidence. I mean, where this information is coming from, that, that's critical. Then another one is transparency. We know that nowadays digital health, everything is about, you know, this uh, adaptive AI algorithms, right? Most of the time it's an algorithm and that's, you know, that's a value proposition with different presentations, but it's a, it's a very interesting uh, algorithm. We need to have transparency. I'd like to see that algorithm. I need to understand how their how your algorithm works and how accurate and reliable it can be. I think that's 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 critical. Another one is privacy. Privacy, it's 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 gonna be something, and it's not it's gonna be actually it is nowadays something crucial that we need to keep in mind as users. At the end of the day, the owner of the data, it's you, the user, the patient. So you need to be very mindful of your data. So just for example, when you how how, how, how careful you are in terms of your uh, of your social security number, in terms of your credit cards, uh, NEEPs, uh, for example, in terms of, the, of, your, of your personal financial information, you need to be the same with your health-related in information. So privacy is something that we need to be sure, but when, cho- when, when you're choosing a app, for example, that the way they're protecting your data is good enough that they have the right GDPR, the right, for example, globally speaking, that they have the right HIPAA in, in, in the US respectively, for example, PIPEDA in Canada and so on, that they are following the right uh, recommendations and guidance in terms of privacy. And in my case, it's actually, uh, as a provider, is clinical actionability. What can I actually do with that information? Where is the science around that information? Because sometimes, sometimes the information that we're getting from those apps, even though it makes a lot of sense, Still, from the implementation standpoint, from the clinical standpoint, they're they are something they lack of actionability. So it's what can actually what 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 can I do with that information? Is there anything that I can I could actually trigger in order to prevent, predict, or even treat? I think that's something to keep in mind as well. And who should be testing these these products? So, t- so traditionally, health products get to market using key opinion leader programs and sales teams. But is there room to do that differently? And is there a, is there a way to get to get input into the effectiveness of these products around everything that you've said? Evidence, transparency, algorithms, and privacy, actionability. How do we get that feedback back to the to the innovators to make sure that the, the product's useful? So could that be could those the, those get to go to market strategies be a little bit different than what they're what, the way we're approaching it now? Yes, and I would I, I believe that this, for example, um, I'm talking specifically for the U.S. Um, I think the FDA, the FDA is and will play a crucial role helping vetting, and you know, not only vetting but also helping to the developers, helping to the stakeholders, on uh, bringing solutions, applicate apps or or property or, or or products with a with a robust evidence base evidence base behind them. So and we we know that um the, the FDA recently updated their digital health of uh, digital health I believe is a digital health center of excellence and they have specific applications nowadays in terms of um digital health. So I believe that the, the agency will be the one 
and should be the one somehow championing and and helping regulating the industry. And have you have you seen any of these digital health innovators um, pitches gone gone awry? Have you seen? <laughs> do you have any examples without getting giving any names, of course? But do um, have some of these been like from from a pitch standpoint? You know what what do you what what are some of the good pitches that you've seen and have some of them just kind of gone off the mark? Yeah, I mean, the, I think I think we all we all witnessed that. I think there are many many uh, examples out there that actually somehow they are. As I said at the beginning, the 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 concept overall might makes a lot of might make a lot of sense, right? I mean, let's say that they are measuring something that for me as a patient. It's good to know, and we all know that we are nowadays on the on the data on the data era. Everyone wants wants everyone wants everyone needs and wants metrics, and we all we're always seeking for data with our you know uh, mobile phones, with our with our um, watches, with our feet bands, with everything. We we are always uh, finding way to to get more data. But the thing is, and and that's that's how you know main, most of the time those apps are you know that's the value proposition they're trying to bring or their purpose their their, their go to market strategies bring something attractive for the patient that actually make them you know jump in or for the user. But the reality is, as I as I as I mentioned before, what is the clinical actionability? What's the clinical implication? What 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 can I actually do? Not only from the treatment standpoint, but from the real preventive standpoint, most of these tools sometimes they lack of clinical trials. Most of them they lack of you know clinical real real scenario clinical trials that can prove effectiveness and that can or can prove actionability. As I, as I as I said before, I'm sorry that I'm repeating myself, but I really want to stress those um, words out. That's 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 something we need to continue keep to continue to keep in mind. But on the other hand, we've 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 seen there's there's many you know direct to consumer testing. Initiatives for, for example, NIPT or for um, cancer carrier testing, for example, with enough evidence behind them, clinical evidence, scientific evidence, and even specific ac- actions after testing. And I think that's that's been something that it's it has been changing um, the way we're 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 uh, preventing diseases. So I think it's about, uh, in other words, following the right development and um, the correct, not only right, but the correct development workflow before before uh, going to market great and kind of bridging that what advice would you tell a founder who is interested in precision medicine solutions you've 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 talked a lot about you know evidence-based medicine the lack of clinical trials the you know making sure that we're harmonized in our language creating platforms is there anything else that you would say if someone's starting their company and they want to create a precision medicine tool what are some of those other things that you would provide advice around that's a that's a fantastic question and it's not only about uh well it's let me go one step back so in short is put or bring your your team the right team together that's step number one sometimes it may sound expensive but it's it makes sense have the expert, the right experts working with you. If, as a matter of fact, if you don't make that investment, I've seen that many times at the beginning, it's going to be way more expensive during, you know, 
during the flight, you know, learning during the flight. So it's number one, the recommendation number one is bring the right experts on board. It's important to have, you know, the right team of experts, such as someone with a techno techno uh, technological background, someone that actually understands wearables, technologies, trends. You need obviously someone that's, uh, with a medical background, that's critical. And it's, it has become a new, I would say a new line of medicine that we, that us as executive physicians, we have been now practicing and getting, you know, trained for this, where you find a way to bring into the table, the clinical input, the scientific input and understanding, but also bring the business, go to business in a, on an ethical base. And with the right team on board, you, you, I recommend to have always three pillars in mind. Number one, the regulatory landscape, take a look into regulatory definitions, take a look, take a look into the regulatory requirements, uh, get, go with agency, talk with them, they're willing to help. So even before launching an idea, you can speak with the agency, you can talk about your, your idea with the agency, and they want to help you to uh, frame that uh, on the best possible way from the regulatory landscape. Number two, evidence invest on developing the right evidence behind your product because most of the time once you do deploy a product that can be i mean if, if you if you didn't prove for example from the clinical standpoint enough evidence you can have a fantastic product from the commercial perspective out there but if the providers doesn't use it or implement it it can be a hard stop for your business or even you know they can they, they can even be against your product because they, they don't they can't find the right value from the clinical scientific standpoint so Clinic, an evidence-based approach with clinical evidence behind it, that would be number two. And number three, clinical actionability. Remember your minimal viable product. Go, go to market to your minimal viable product, but always thinking on clinical actionability, how this information will trigger action from the clinical standpoint. I believe those three pillars, it's, it's, a, good, it's, a, it's a good starting point for any startup or um, any interpreter and an entrepreneur uh, jumping into this field. Excellent. I'm going to put a plug in for our webinar in a few weeks. You, you had mentioned the right team of experts. And so in a few weeks on August 24th, Bernard, along with some amazing colleagues, are going to talk about um, why chief medical officers and chief scientific officers are important for tires for digital health companies. So I, I look forward to that discussion because I think we'll, we'll dive really deep into what that team looks like and why, why it's important to have the medical and the scientific and, like you said, the regulatory expertise on the team. Yep, and I think that's 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 uh, it's going to be a fantastic uh, webinar, and a lot of experts that are, I'm looking forward to have this conversation with them. And uh, one last uh, recommendation would be: this is the time of making alliances. This is the time of working with other companies. Many times, the the startups are trying to develop everything by themselves, and it's so expensive. And it's an endless loop. So sometimes it makes more sense just partner with the with the right guys. Partner with a company that is already working on AI. Partner with a company that is already working with clinical algorithms. Partner with other companies in order to bring your product, your minimal viral product, faster to market. Excellent. So I wanted to um, close with, with two questions. So first, I want to put you on the spot a little bit and ask you what your secret to success is. Done so much. And as a physician scientist, you've kind of traverse, you know, both the field of physician, but then science, a science mindset. So I'd love to hear about that, especially for you know, people that might be interested in going in that direction. And then, and then from that, I like to segue into what do you think the health system is going to look like in 10 years? So a little bit about you and then a little bit of a crystal ball question. <laughs> well, the, the, the first one, uh, uh, it's, um, 
well, number one, I'm driven by passion. So you need to follow your passion. And I love Christian medicine. And that's my passion. And number two, continue learning, continue growing. When I, uh, 12 years ago, 12, 13 years, 12, each, 12 years ago, when I started as an executive decision, I noticed that I didn't know a thing about business. So I, I, I performed an MBA, for example. Then I, I noticed the, the importance of having an in-depth understanding of the regulatory landscape. And I, and I involved myself into different training careers around FDA or ETR and so on, for example. So keep learning and keep learning from others. Nowadays, uh, we need to keep an open mind in terms of medicine. It's not enough. It's, uh, the content or the information about just treating our patients, if you want to jump into the personal medicine field or into the physician executive role, is not enough. You need to you need to keep your mind open to learn different things outside of your of your of your wheelhouse. May I describe it like that? You need to be open to learn about engineering a little bit about you know even without becoming an engineer, just learn learn a bit about how does the system work. For example, you need to learn about a product, marketing, and different strategies. Just keep your mind open, learning, but always rely on your clinical judgment. That's how that's at the end of the day, that's that's where everything started. That's 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 our main passion. That's why we are in my case, for example, physicians. We need always to think the cornerstone of everything that we have been discussing today is patients first. So that that's for example, for instance, that's 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 what actually worked for me. Uh, now <clears throat> jumping into your into your second question here, it's an interesting one. I would say everything's gonna be around value-based care. I would say. The system needs to change globally. The way we are spending money in terms of healthcare, it's we're, we we know it's not working. We all know nowadays that it's not working. We all know that um, that we cannot sustain the same practices nowadays. So everything will change into value-based care, and precision medicine will play a critical role there. Great. Well, Bernard, thank you so much. I love your message around your you know going with your passion and and continuing to learn and grow throughout your career. I think those are, that's great advice to anyone um, looking to drive success in whatever business they're doing. So I, I really appreciate it. And it's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. If you're a digital health innovator who needs access to leading health industry experts to build, commercialize, and scale your health product, please contact MDisrupt. Thank you.